did. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you um, that in our need we can approach you. Trust that you hear us. Trust that you have good things in store for your children. Father, we lift up to you this morning a, a friend of our church that has lost their mother this morning or yesterday, and we pray, Father, for comfort for that family. We pray that they would find strength and peace in Jesus Christ during this time and during this season, that you would comfort them and help our church to be a light to them in any way that we can. We pray this morning for a brother of our church who has uh, moved to another city, and we pray that you would smooth his travels and his transition to a new place, that he would love um, the people there for the sake of the gospel. We pray, Father, for all of us who are struggling to maintain our focus on Jesus Christ amidst all of the commercialism and pressures and travels and events of this season. Would you help us to remember that it is because he came, and because he came to save, and because he promises to return, to come again, to finish, and to judge, that we celebrate it all. And would that be our heart in these weeks of, of chaos and confusion? We pray for our students who are trying to wrap up semesters or at least to try to focus on uh, their schoolwork when they are uh, itching to be doing other things and the end is so near that you would help them to persevere in their studies and do their best work that they might make much of Jesus. And we pray for our teachers that um, as they uh, perhaps grow frustrated and tired um, as the uh, semester or season comes to a close, that they would endure and that they would help their students to stay focused, to be the best versions of themselves and to not lose sight of their responsibilities, that they might make much of Jesus during this time. And Father, we pray as always that you would help us to know you better through your word and that you would even allow that to be true this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn your uh, Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 11. And we are closing out our sermon series on Genesis. No, we're not going all the way through Genesis right now at this time. Um, but we wanted to cover sort of the introductory bit of Genesis through uh, the 26th verse of chapter 11, and so that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in uh, Genesis 11, verse 10, down through verse 26, and Lord willing, we'll cover the rest of Genesis another time. But let's read these verses, and then we'll, we'll talk. These are the generations of Shem. 
When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived, uh, excuse me, and Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. When Serug lived, another, lived, af- and Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years. And he had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So we have another genealogy, and I am sure uh, that you are all saying, yay! Uh, but as the final message in our short series on the beginning of Genesis, we have to tackle it. Um, we're not going to skip anything. Um, but it has a little bit different thrust than the other genealogies that we've looked at in this book. And we need this one. We need this one because more than any of the others that we've come across, it represents a line of hope. And so let's dig in on this hope and, and look at the, the who's who of this genealogy, the, the key figure, and, and maybe a resurgent motif. So what's the who's who of this? Let, let's talk about what we know about the people on this list, what we know about these names, because some of these names are the same as the names in chapter 10. And what does that tell us? Well, uh, that tells us that some of these individuals might fit into a gray area where it's not entirely clear if we're talking about one man or about a people or a group. And sometimes it might be both. For instance, uh, the second name on this list, Arpachshad, has been sometimes identified with a couple different place names in the ancient Near East. And so is Moses telling us that Shem gave rise to the man who founded that place or became extremely influential over that place, or whose family dominated the culture there? Or is he simply saying that there was a man named Arpachshad and nothing more or less? Sometimes that's a little bit unclear. Some names on this list, though, are clearly individuals, and that's the case uh, with the men at the top and the bottom of the list. At the, the top, we've already heard about Shem, and how he showed honor to his father when his brother didn't. And at the bottom, we have Abram, Nahor, and Haran, along with their father, Terah, who are treated very clearly in the stories that follow as individual men. It's that group in the middle that's a little bit fuzzier. And we also have these really long lifespans again. They aren't nearly as long, though, as those lifespans 
in Genesis 5. And it, and it seems like lifespans are getting shorter and shorter on the whole. God did say in Genesis 6 that he would limit the lifespans of humans. And maybe after the flood, we're to understand that this was a gradual process. But, but even still, the dates seem hard to believe, don't they? They're very long. Now, if these are nations or if these are groups of people, then, then we could make some sense of them, though uh, we wouldn't have all of our questions answered. But, um, but many scholars think that these numbers are symbolic in some way. The problem is, is that nobody has come up with a convincing explanation for what the numbers are symbolic of. But if the ages point to anything... I think it would be that there was at least some idea that the Hebrews had of a, a golden age of sorts before the flood that was coming to an end as decay from sin and the consequences of God's judgment were taking their effect in the world. These individuals were important. They were worthy to be remembered, even if it's not the point of the chapter to tell us their stories. But the fact that something symbolic or at least representative is going on here can be demonstrated by the fact that different ancient copies of this chapter have a different number of names. Some have nine names, some have ten. So in the New Testament, Luke records the genealogy of Jesus. He uses the ten-name list. And that could suggest that the genealogy was not intended to be comprehensive. That there are a lot of unknowns about what these times and dates mean and how these generations stretched out over history. It seems, though, like the point that Moses wanted to make above all with this genealogy is that there was an unbroken line of descent between Shem the son of Noah, and Abram, the son of Terah. And with that unbroken line of descent, we have Shem, on whom Noah pronounced a blessing because of Shem's faithfulness in honoring him, even when he, Noah, was at his lowest and most dishonorable Actually, more specifically, if you remember that passage, Noah blessed God or worshipped God because of Shem. And in the midst of that worship of God, he does offer uh, Shem a wish, or we might say a blessing, through that worship. We also have this Eber. We talked about him briefly in chapter 10. Uh, who's uh, stood out because it's likely from his name that we get the term Hebrew. And so just like the Semites are descendants of Shem, the Hebrews are descendants of Eber. And Peleg was also mentioned in chapter 10. His name, Peleg, is reminiscent of the Hebrew word for division. And we're told in chapter 10 that that was a fitting name because the earth was divided during his life. Mostly that it is intended to mean the Tower of Babel incident. And if we could unearth that ziggurat uh, from Babel and date it, 
we might be able to at least put a chronological pivot point on this list. We could date it to the days of Peleg and then kind of branch out either way from there. But unfortunately, that is lost in scholars' best uh, belief on what ziggurat that might have been was destroyed long ago, and the date of the construction of that building has been lost even longer. We've got Sarig, whose name has been connected to some place names in the ancient Near East as well, and so has Nahor. But Nahor is also interesting because his grandson would be named after him. That grandson, Abram's brother, becomes the father of Laban, who would be something of a nemesis for his nephew, Jacob. So there's some important names on this list and some names that we've come across. But if anything stands out in this who's who, it's this unbroken line between Shem, the son of blessing, and Abraham, the son of Terah. Genesis is not a genealogy of the human race, though it might seem that way at some times. Every genealogy that exists in this book is strategically placed for the sake of the audience. And who's the audience? Well, the first audience, the original audience, was the nation of Israel. It was the Israelites. And who were the Israelites? Well, they were the descendants of Israel, of course. But that's only part of the story. So although the Jewish people often see themselves as the Israelites, they have long seen themselves also as descendants of Abram or descendants of Abraham. Later in the book of Genesis, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. So you might see a temple or a synagogue today like the one in Illyria called Benai Abraham, the sons or children of Abraham. And that's interesting. That might actually seem a little bit strange because if you know something about the history of religions, you know that it's not just the Jewish people who see themselves as descendants of Abraham. The Arabs, the Islamic Arabs in particular, claim to trace their descent to Abraham as well, although through a different one of his children. And not just the Arabs, but according to the Old Testament and according to Jewish faith, it was the descendants specifically of Abram's grandson Israel who were taken as God's special people and brought into the land of Canaan. So it might make sense that they would use terms like Israelite or call themselves the nation that exists today Israel because of that. But, but, but why associate so closely with Abraham, who gave rise to so many nations that troubled the Israelites throughout their history and even today? Even though we have this term Semitic that comes from the name Shem, you are not going to find many temples called Benai Shem, sons of Shem. You won't see many, if any, temples called Benai Noah, children of Noah. 
So why Abraham, if Abraham's line gave birth to lines that were not the Jewish people? And I think the best explanation of that, and it's kind of where this passage is taking us, is probably in the dual nature of this term son or child. And that's true in Hebrew, and that's true in a lot of languages, even English. We expect a child to take the name uh, of, of his, or ex- expect to take after his parents or her parents in many ways. And so when we speak of a son of something or a child of something, we often mean that they share the characteristics of that person or that thing. So even in English, we might say someone was a child of the 60s. We don't mean that the decade gave birth to the person, but we mean that um, the, the culture and ideas and the feelings of that time period are, are very much embodied in that person. They are very much characterized by the unique trends of that time period. And Abram, or Abraham, becomes, he becomes sort of the central figure of the book of Genesis. Uh, roughly the next 13 chapters, he is the focus. And of all the sections in Genesis, only the last section is longer, but that, that section focuses on a bunch of different people. It doesn't focus so squarely on one figure like the next 13 chapters are going to. And so arguably no one receives more attention in the book of Genesis than Abraham. And yet we're just now getting to him. Abraham had many descendants, but not all of them took after him. Israel did. But Abraham was the paradigm. He was the model. Abraham was the one you could compare other Israelites to. Why? What made Abraham the reference, the model for those who came after him? Abraham's story is rich, and we're not going to cover it in this sermon, let alone this sermon series, but the the outlines of it are important for this passage because this passage is pointing us to him for a reason. We get to him at the bottom of this list. When Abraham first does anything, it's in the next chapter, chapter 12, and God appears to him and tells him to leave his homeland and everything he knows with this promise. God says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, who was still called Abram at the time, was from Ur. That's the city we mentioned last week as the place that one of those ziggurats uh, was built and one of the most impressive ones still standing, although it's in decay. But we know some things about Ur and that region at that time. It was, for one thing, a center, maybe the center, of the worship 
of the moon god Sin. And most scholars believe that Abram's wife's name, Sarai, as well as his brother's wife's name, Milcah, were connected to the names of pagan deities. Sin, the god, was the father of Ishtar, who was known as Milcah of heaven, the queen of heaven. And Sin also gave birth to Shamash, the sun god. Abram was asked to leave his land, to leave his nation, to leave his father's house by the Lord, by Yahweh, who was not Sin, who was not Ishtar, who was not Shamash or any other Babylonian god. And this Yahweh essentially was asking him to abandon Sin and all gods he had known and head off to the place God would show him, sight unseen, no directions, no details. We might say that was a big ask. Some of you might have a sense of that feeling. You have left your home countries. You have left your home families. You have left your home people. You know how large a commitment that could be. But a few thousand years ago, there was no promise that you would ever communicate with those people again, let alone see them again. And for those of you who have made such a move, it was probably your idea. But imagine some spiritual being that you've never met before. Some new God that you had never heard of before who was quite different from the ones that you had been taught to worship growing up in Ur, telling you to leave all of that. And imagine you don't know where you're actually going to wind up going. All you have is a promise that you'll get there somewhere and this God would bless you. How would you respond? Well, Abram responded in the same way that he would over and over again in his life. He simply did it. The very next verse in chapter 12 is, So Abraham or Abram went as the Lord had told him. On more than one occasion, God showed up in Abram's life. And on more than one occasion, Abram responded in a way that demonstrated and, and showed that he was content to follow. In chapter 15 of Genesis, Abram is, is getting pretty old and he knows that God has promised to bless him and make him a great nation, but he's an old man. It's starting to seem unlikely. He has no son, he has no daughter for that matter, to pass on his name and to pass on his inheritance to. And God appears to him again and doubles down on what he said in chapter 12. He promised Abram that he would have a son and his descendants would be too numerous to count. And although it may have seemed unlikely, and although Abram could not see any of God's promises coming true, here's what we read in verse 6 of chapter 15. It says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
In this passage, I'd argue that we see Abram's heart, I mean, in chapter 15, we see Abram's heart, and we see there in a way that could only be experienced indirectly in chapter 12, and that is that Abram trusted God. He took God at his word. When he left his nation and his people and his religion, and he took God at his word when he accepted that God would give him a son. In chapter 12, we see faith lived out. And in chapter 15, we see faith from God's eye peering into his heart. But this is what faith looks like. God intrudes in our world, and we respond by taking him at his word. Time and time again, then, in the Bible, that paradigm is used for faith. God intervenes. God shows up, and someone takes him at his word. When we see it, then, it's like we go, aha, that looks a little bit like Abraham. And that's the author signaling to us that this person has faith when that person is showing a response to God's intervention by taking God at his word. That person looks a bit like Abraham, the man of faith, and it's a demonstration that that man or woman is also a person of faith. So Abram becomes this paradigm. And you know what we we call someone who looks a bit like someone else? We might call them a son or a daughter, a child. Well, it's clear that other biblical characters had faith before Adam, like Enoch and Noah. Abraham is the most explicit early example of what faith looks like. We get a hint of it with Noah build a crazy large wooden ark and get inside of it before I destroy everything, and he does it, that's faith. But with Abram, it is given even more detail, more emphasis, and it happens repeatedly. So Abram becomes the model of faith. His grandson, Israel, has that same faith, but we know it, we recognize Israel's faith because we see Israel in light of Abraham. We see the comparison. That's how we know that Israel has faith. And so we get to someplace like Romans chapter 4. We have the Apostle Paul, who was a learned rabbi, who appeals to the example of Abraham in explaining the Christian faith. And so by Paul's day, the Jewish people often distinguished themselves by the fact that they had God's law given through Moses, and that that made them special. But Paul points out that in Genesis 15, the Bible says that Abraham had faith. He was accepted by God. And yet it was still several hundred years before God would give the law through Moses. If Abraham could be in the right with God without the Jewish law, then the law itself was not the most important thing. And Paul argues, in a way that's very similar to the way Jesus argued and John the Baptist before him, 
that the biological descent from Abraham is not important. In Greek, the word for faith is pistis, which sounds weird in English, but that's the word. And so, so what is related to faith is pistological, not epistemological. That's different. That's about knowledge, but pistological. It's not a, it's not a common word. But what Paul and John and Jesus argue is that it's not the genetic resemblance to Abraham that matters, but the pistological resemblance to Abraham that matters. Are, are you like Abraham in the color of your eyes or the curl of your hair or whether you can roll your tongue? Or are you like him in that you share the same faith? Imagine a father has a son, and he lavishes this son with gifts, and he cares for the son, and he provides for the son. But as the son gets older, as sometimes sons do, he grows resentful of his father. And one day, in a fit of rage, the sun storms out. Maybe it's over Thanksgiving dinner. I don't know. It doesn't matter, but they, they never talk again. And the father is heartbroken for his son, but what can he do? In time, he gets a little bit older, retires, begins to have a little bit of trouble caring for himself, only a little at first, then more and more. But all the while, a new couple moves into the neighborhood, and, and they're a really awful couple. They're terrible people. They badly mistreat their children. But all the while, they have this one young son who's very different than his parents. He's not cold and callous like them. And he meets the old man one day while the man is mowing his lawn, doing the best he can. They strike up a conversation. He finds the old man to be pleasant and, and kind. And he begins to spend his afternoons after school at the old man's house. The man would teach him his wisdom and knowledge of the world and help him with his homework. Sometimes he'd share his dinner with the boy. And over time, the old man's house becomes more than just a place in the neighborhood, but something like a home. And as the man grows older and grows weaker, the young boy grows stronger, and he, he begins to take care of the man. And he ensured that the man got to his medical appointments and helped him with his grocery shopping. Down the line, the young boy becomes a young man and has a son of his own. But rather than treat the son like his father had treated him, he loves his son the way he learned to love from the old man. And that little boy is raised with love and, and kindness to be like the old man. And when the old man finally passed away, the young man goes to the funeral, and for the first time he comes face to face with a middle-aged man who had the same last name as the old man. It was the man's progeny. That man glanced at the casket sat in the back, then hastily leaves when the service was over. But the younger man with his young son and his wife, they, they tarried for hours, remembering stories of the old man and things that he had taught them. The young man even shares some stories from when he was younger that somehow he had never shared with his wife. And, and they come back 
to him in those hours of laughing and crying, these memories. And finally, they're there for so long that the funeral director comes in. He, he needed room uh, for another family that was coming soon, and he didn't want to disturb them. But what could he do? He had to ask them to, to leave. And so he drew the, near the, the young man. He says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but we, we have another family coming in this needs this room, and I, I, I hate to ask you to leave. But, you know, your, your father must have been a great man. It's clear you loved him very, very much. I mean, from the stories I heard the other guests share, it's quite clear you took after him. And shocked, the young father said, oh, I, I'm not his son. I was just his neighbor. And the field director pauses for a moment and thought on this and said, well, it sure seems like he was your father. Wouldn't we agree? Because isn't the father the one we resemble in the most important ways? Isn't the child the one who resembles the parents in the ways that matter most? And so Abraham becomes the model of faith. And his children are those who share his faith. So the Israelites took their name from Abraham's grandson, in no small part because Abraham's most prominent other son did not share his faith. And his son that did, a boy named Isaac, had two sons, and neither of them seemed to share his faith early in life. But one son exhibited the faith of the father and the grandfather before him later in life, Israel. But both Israel and Isaac before him looked back to Father Abraham, the model of what true faith looks like. And both John the Baptist and Jesus challenged their fellow Jews on this point. When some of them would claim to be children of Abraham, but did not show the faith of Abraham. They could ask, are you really Abraham's children? Or do you have someone else as your father? So that's Abraham in a nutshell. He's the father of faith. He is the paradigm of pistis. He is the teacher of trust. Faithful Israelites or Jews could look back on him as their exemplar. And for centuries, Christians have also. The early Israelite readers of Genesis were seeing how the line of Noah reached them. And these verses in Genesis 11 took them there. But there's another part of the story Abraham is pointing to in Genesis 11 something that these first readers of the book would have known all too well. We've already highlighted in this sermon series, in this book, the idea of blessing. God blessed human beings when he created them in Genesis 1. And that blessing was tied to multiplying and exercising dominion over the earth. But blessing is rooted in God. We saw. So, so when humans were separated from God's presence after they rebelled against him, we had uh, maybe a fair question what would happen to this blessing? 
But through the descent from Adam that was traced in Genesis 5, there was this glimmer of hope that God's blessing was not entirely wiped out. Uh, we had people still being born, and so they're multiplying, they're filling the earth, and we meet this man Enoch, who was said to have walked with God, which is an unusual expression in Hebrew, but as a result of him walking with God, he does not taste death the way his relatives in the human race had. And it's a mysterious glimpse of the possibility that connection with God was not impossibly lost forever. And then we saw how human beings continued to multiply on the earth. But instead of following the pattern of Enoch, they tried to get blessings from God apart from God. And the earth became so corrupt that God passed judgment on it and wiped out life. But he spared another man and his family who walked with him, this family of Noah. It was the second major judgment in the book of Genesis. And with all life wiped out, maybe this time we might think blessing is gone. But when Noah left the ark, God blessed him and reiterated the command to fill the earth. Noah had found favor with God, and God's blessing was still out there. It was still able to be accessed. But no sooner does that happen than Noah himself succumbed to drunkenness. And in his weakness, his son Ham dishonored him to his brothers. And his brothers, Shem and Japheth, worked quickly to cover his father's disgrace and honor him. And when Noah learned of it, he called for God's blessings on them, particularly on Shem, even as he placed a curse on Ham's son, Canaan. Then quickly things descended to madness again. As human beings once again multiplied under God's blessing, but once again tried to usurp God's kingship at Babel. And God judged the world. Three judgments in less than 11 chapters. But we know from the whole of Scripture that that judgment at Babel was a merciful judgment. We talked about that last week. It was designed by God to spread humans out that they might find him. And in finding him, they would find life and find blessing. And in these verses, we see even now, after three rebellions and after three judgments, God has not removed his blessing entirely from the world. It's, it's clear that uh, not everyone... has lost God's blessing. They're continuing to multiply. They're continuing to spread out. We know that some people, maybe from the looks of Genesis 1 through 11, and by looking at most of history, most people miss out on God's blessing. But the blessing itself is unchanging and sure. What would become of the blessing placed on Shem by his father Noah? We know from these verses that we read today that he was fruitful, that he multiplied. But what about Noah's prayer? Back in chapter 9, verses 26 through 27, Noah said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. 
At first, the idea of blessing the Lord would seem to only be worship, like we said. But the fact that he wishes for Japheth to dwell in his tents and for Canaan, the descendant of Ham, to be a servant, suggests that there's a blessing here on Shem also. Canaan, who represents dishonoring the father, violating God's law, and rebellion, would serve the one who had honored the father and kept faith. But Japheth, not as a servant, would also somehow come under the tents of Shem. Somehow, the line of Shem would become a place of protection and a place of rest for the line of Japheth. And we saw at the time, if you remember back to that uh, a sermon, that there might be some sort of wordplay going on uh, here because the idea of the tents of Shem is very close to the tents of shame, the name, the way that faithful Jews might refer to Yahweh instead of saying Yahweh, the true God. They say the name. There's a, there's a hint that in coming to Shem, the nations are actually finding God himself. And, and so we come to Abram. And as the book moves into chapter 12, and we read that promise that God made, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this Abram, this descendant of Shem, would not only be blessed, but would become in himself a blessing. And God would bless all those who bless Abraham. And somehow, someway, every people, every nation would be blessed through Abraham. And so Abraham wasn't just the father of faith. He was the begetter of blessing. And Paul brings these points together in Galatians 3 where he writes this, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, or nations, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You might look at it this way. The blessings that God gives Abraham become something of his inheritance, which he can bestow on his children. But who are Abraham's children? It's not his biological genetic descent. It's those who resemble their father. And so those who share in the faith of Abraham are the children of Abraham, and so they can receive the inheritance that God had treasured up in Abraham. If you want to get in on the blessings of Abraham, you have to be part of the family. How do you become part of the family? You look like the father. How do you look like the father? You have the faith of the father. How? How do we get in on that blessing then? How do we logically allow ourselves to count ourselves as blessed? Because we have this 
really fundamental problem, don't we, that God is good? He is very good. He's patient with his creation. We've seen that in Genesis 1 through 11, but we do keep messing up. Abram, Adam sinned, Noah sinned, and, and not to spoil the story, but Abraham does his share of sinning also. And so how could these sinners, how could these rebels receive God's blessing and find favor with God? I need to know that. You need to know that. Because I'm a pretty terrible sinner. And so if there's a way that I, as a pretty terrible sinner, can find favor with God, I need to know what that is. Chapter 15 says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him, or credited to him, as righteousness. But isn't that unfair? Why give Abraham credit for something he did not earn? Why count Abraham as righteous if he wasn't actually righteous? How is that just? How is that fair? Long time ago, in a different life, when I was in uh, uh, management at a Petco, um, we would count the drawers at the end of the shift, make sure they balance. And there was a pretty tight control over how much could be missing. I don't remember what it was, five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever. Um, I don't believe we ever had to fire anyone over it, which was, which was great. But, but to avoid hassles, both with the person and with corporate, over trivial amounts of money, uh, we were taught, um, I don't think this was by the book, but we were taught to keep a slush fund of sorts. Um, a little loose change in the office drawer. And so if somebody's drawer was off by a few cents, and we knew they were trustworthy, but something just went a little awry, things just happened along chaotic shift, you know, we can take 12 cents or 37 cents out of the office drawer, top off the register, and everything was back to even. Now, it never came up, thankfully, but, but I don't think we would have done that if we believed the person was unfaithful, if we believed the person could not be trusted. Now, we, we couldn't see into their hearts, of course, but I, but I suppose if we had seen a pattern of missing money or a huge loss in one or two drawers in a short amount of time, it might tip us off that this person wasn't actually on our side. And then instead of, you know, gracefully topping off their drawer at the end of the shift, we might just let their drawer be short and, and, and write them up. But as long as we thought they were honest, as long as we thought they were trustworthy, we had a supply of treasure from which we could make them whole. In fact, even if it wasn't a mistake, even if it had been an actual crime, and I don't ever know this to have happened, but even if it had been an actual crime, like taking a dollar out of the register to buy a 20-ounce Diet Coke for their shift, uh, if we'd otherwise known the person to be reliable and faithful and just had a bad day, I could imagine us looking the other way and topping off the drawer. But in either case, it, it wasn't their doing that made their drawer full. It was our door doing. But it still counted. 
What if God has a treasury of merit, a storehouse of righteousness that was not for him, was not of any real benefit to him, but nonetheless he had it? And what if it pleased God to bestow that treasury on those who were trustworthy, despite their errors, on those who we might say were faithful? Then couldn't God top off the accounts to make men and women righteous? And wouldn't he be fully just in doing so? They don't deserve it. No one deserves it. But as the possessor of this repository of righteousness, God can dispense it as he chooses. And that's what he has done. It wasn't clear at the time how God could justify this move, but he promised that he was just. And so then justified in doing any move he made. But in time, God made it clear he took on flesh. He became like us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, his coming in the flesh, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. A son of Adam, a son of Noah, a son of Abraham, a son of Israel, a son of David. And he was like us in every way, the author of Hebrews wrote, except for sin. And when we rebelled, he, despite taking on all the limitations and weaknesses that we share, while we sinned, he chose righteousness and holiness at every step, and yet he died. Death is the consequence of sin. So this Jesus didn't deserve to die, but he chose to die to pay for the unpaid debt of sinners like me. The drawer of my life was short, and he made it whole. And not just me. Jesus rose from the dead as proof positive that he had enough righteousness to overcome death and to pay for the sins of a trillion sinners to make their drawers full. And it is his pleasure to distribute that righteousness, to write that righteousness on the accounts of those who take him at his word, who trust him, who are faithful. This then in chapter 11 is a genealogy of hope. It is the line of God's rescue whereby he allows wicked, broken, messed up sinners like me to find salvation from the consequences of my life, not because of what I do to make up for it, but because of what God was doing, is doing, and still promises to do in Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of Shem. Do you have that hope? Let's pray.
Father, open our hearts to know the unbreaking line of hope and faithfulness that you have brought about in your history. May we not lose sight of it, but may we grow in it. Reveal Jesus Christ to us in this season when he came to reveal the fullness of deity. and to become a ransom for sinners. Thank you, Father, that you have made a way for us. Despite our rebellion, despite our rejection of you, despite our wickedness, despite our evil, you have made space for us. You make our accounts full. You count our faith as righteousness. Though we are weak and undeserving. Thank you that you have blessed us with the blessings of Abraham, those of us who share this faith. Empower us by your spirit to speak of this blessing, this hope, and where to find it to those who have yet to receive it. And with any who have yet to receive it, who hear today, know that it can be found, all of the blessings of Abraham, all of the blessings of the garden, in Jesus the Christ, who died and bled for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's sing in anticipation of his coming again. <clears throat>